This presentation is from UX Australia 2020, day four. Our next speaker is Melissa Bergberg. Um, Melissa's going to be tackling a topic um, that forms a pretty significant part of our practice, which is uh, getting more engagement in our workshops. Um, hello, Melissa. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Hi, Steve. How are you? Very well. Thanks for joining us. Me. All right, I will hand over to you. Thank you. The carrot and the stick. Get them to do it, but make them think it's their idea. Give bonuses to the top 10% and fire the bottom 10%. Who knows what I'm talking about? I'm talking about traditional forms of motivation. For over 40 years, Dr. Edward DC and Dr. Richard Ryan have dedicated basically their entire career to research motivation and better understand what drives us to engage. They've worked with hundreds of psychologists from all over the world, and they found we've been doing it all wrong. In my talk today, I'll give an overview of self-determination theory apply it to the design and facilitation of UX workshops, and share a case study of the theory and practice. Over the last 10 years, I've run over 50 workshops with a range of participants, from surgeons to people struggling with homelessness, to farmers, to transport workers, to sea level executives, even people who study dirt for a living. And what I've learned is it doesn't matter how well you plan out your agenda or how amazing your activities are, if you're unable to motivate people to participate in your session, you won't get what you need from the research. Since applying self-determination theory to my workshops, I've noticed attendees are more creative in their thinking, work on tricky problems for longer periods of time, and work better in a cohesive way. Before we get to self-determination theory, I need to distinguish between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. Extrinsic motivation is when people do something for a reward or to avoid punishment, the carrot or the stick. It's based on the simplistic belief that humans will seek pleasure and avoid pain. It's the most common method used to motivate people, something we often see in performance incentive programs. In contrast, with intrinsic motivation, people do an activity for the act of enjoyment. When people are intrinsically motivated, they are more creative, better at solving problems, and their emotions are much more positive. These are exactly the types of behaviors we want to foster in our workshops. Based on the evidence from hundreds of experiments, Dr. DC and Dr. Ryan recommend intrinsic motivation as the best way to motivate and engage people. In Jess's keynote yesterday, she also touched on how intrinsic values promote better well-being. Self-determination theory is the theory of activating intrinsic motivation. So, how do we motivate people without the use of money, power, and status? What's in this secret sauce? 
Well, the good news is to facilitate intrinsic motivation through self-determination theory, we just need to create an environment where three things can happen, autonomy, competence, and relatedness. For autonomy, we need to make sure people know how to do something and can do it without requiring help. For competence, they need to know they are effective in what they're doing. They need to know I can do this well. For relatedness, it needs to be clear how the task is connected to them and that this connection holds value for them. Probably many of you are familiar with self-determination theory, but for those of you who aren't, I'll quickly apply it to an example. How do you feel when you see this image? How many of you see it and suddenly feel interest and motivation to play one of these games? Anyone see it and feel nothing? I fit into the second category. Much to the disappointment of my partner and friends, I've never been motivated to play video games. Over the years, they've tried tons of different games to engage me. This one has great storytelling. This one has beautiful graphics. You'll love the music in this one. And each time I feel terrible. I'm like, I'm just not wired that way. I don't wanna win and I don't wanna play. I'm not motivated to play video games. Let's apply self-determination theory to this situation and use it like a checklist. If the theory works, I will be motivated to play a video game. The first human need is autonomy. Maybe the reason I'm not keen on games is that they are too tricky and I can't understand them. I tried a simple game, Pong. <coughs> Excuse me, it wasn't too difficult. I'm proud to say I can play Pong without help, but it wasn't enough. I wasn't motivated to play. Next is competence. So I'll need to feel like I'm good at a game. I played Ms. Pac-Man when I was younger, so I practiced a bit more and felt confident in my ability, but I still felt empty inside. I wasn't motivated to play. The third human need is relatedness. Well, this is where things started to get interesting. My friends showed me Animal Crossing and explained it to me. I was able to do it by myself, autonomy. I got better at it and they gave me positive reinforcement, competence. Then they introduced me to friends who were also playing the game. This was the missing link, connectedness. In the past, all the games I played were just me versus machine. With Animal Crossing, being able to visit other people's islands and engage with friends made it something I actually wanted to play. I'm now gonna take you through my recommendations for how you can apply self-determination theory to your UX workshops. About a year ago, I ran a workshop with an energy company who was looking at improving the process for receiving goods in their warehouses. I was told I'd have warehouse workers in the workshop, so I was confident we'd be able to map out the current state process in the session. Without my knowledge, the company decided at the last minute that only the managers of the warehouse workers should attend the workshop. This created a problem as the managers didn't know the details for the receiving process. As you can probably expect, the managers began to disengage. They didn't want to get it wrong um, or show how little they knew about what their team did. Two people started checking emails and the others began to talk amongst themselves. In order for people to be autonomous, they need to know what to do. The next time I did this type of workshop, I sent out a pre-work pack with discussion questions and a process flow template. This gave them a heads up into the aims of the workshop. They had a chance to ask their team about the process ahead of time. 
This time they knew what to do, they came prepared, and were motivated and engaged throughout the session. Say it, write it, do it. We all learn and absorb information in different ways, and it's important to be inclusive when you give directions for a task. In a workshop I did with an agriculture client, the attendees were asked to write down their pain points with a particular process. Then were asked to place their post-its onto a frustrometer. I drew a thermometer on a whiteboard and said to place their most frustrating pain points at the top and their less frustrating points near the bottom. During the session, we would focus on the burning pain points, everything up in the top section. I'd use this visual method lots of times to help people prioritize their pain points. There was one person who wasn't participating. He had moved to the corner of the room and was looking on his phone. When I checked in on him, he said he didn't understand how the pain points were related to trust. I realized he thought I had said trustometer instead of frustrometer. This showed me how crucial it is to write everything on the whiteboard or virtual board, especially when we get overly familiar with our methods and forget people are seeing it for the first time. This person went on to provide some of the best insights for the entire group, and I almost lost him over the misunderstanding of one word. One of the biggest reasons people lose motivation is that they aren't sure what we are asking them to do. I really enjoy running online workshops. Probably a lot of you have used Miro, but for those who haven't, it's an online workshop platform in real time, so you can collaborate together. Probably a lot of people are looking at the, the Miro board from this conference, you're getting used to it. In my first Miro workshop, I started off by explaining how the software worked to the people in my session, and then we went into the exercises. Nobody used the tools. They just discussed while I madly documented their comments onto post-its. After the session, I realized that even though I had explained how it worked, it wasn't good enough, and people were not motivated to participate. For my next workshop, I planned a covert training session that doubled as an icebreaker. I asked everyone, what's the best thing about working from home? They need to answer the question by dragging a post-it to the board and then change the color on it. I know this sounds very basic, but dedicating time to answering a no pressure question made a big difference in engagement to con and contribution later on. They felt comfortable using the post-its to add comments and also experimented with the other tools. Competence. It's great to give positive verbal feedback, but providing written affirmation means that if someone misses what you say, it stays visible. I like to write key insights onto a whiteboard or mirror board and document quotes from people as we go. This provides real-time validation and evidence participants are doing the task well. Another way to instill competence is to choose words that encourage flow instead of halting progress. When the time for a task is almost up, I say, who's ready to move on? Instead of, who still needs more time? Which can imply that work hasn't been completed appropriately. Tracking workshop milestones helps to reinforce competency. Once we complete a workshop activity, I tick it off the agenda and highlight individual contributions from the teams. I find visual tracking helps the confidence of the group. Before the workshop, I get in contact with the project sponsor to learn a bit more about the attendees. I make a cheat sheet that says things like, 
Sue has worked in the company for 20 years, knows everything about customer complaints. This means that I can direct questions to the appropriate person and acknowledge their expertise. Instead of saying, can anyone share why customers might be frustrated with the system? Anyone? Anyone? Which can lead to radio silence, especially in remote workshops when you've got 20 people on the call. Instead, I'll say something like, Sue, based on your experience with feedback surveys, can you share why you think customers are frustrated with this system? It's an old classroom technique. It really works to draw people in by using their name. Not only does this highlight the competence of the attendees, but it keeps people on their toes as they think they might be next to be called out. I found that breaking everyone into teams at the beginning of the workshop can make a significant difference to the final output. Being part of a team can strengthen the relationship in the session, especially if you have participants from different levels of the business, like field workers and executives in the same session. Also, you get to learn a bit about the organizational culture and the nuances of the company or industry when they go through the process of choosing a name, motto, and team ritual. In the times when I haven't created teams, I found people are more likely to check emails or take calls during the workshop. Using teams improves personal accountability and motivation to participate. As humans, we are wired for connection. When we discover something new, we want to share our learnings. By pausing after each design activity to play back the findings, teams are able to check in with each other, review their progress, and many times, because we're in Australia, make a joke. It can be difficult sometimes to allocate time for playbacks after every activity, but I've always received positive feedback that playbacks are a valuable component of the workshop. <clears throat> a few years ago, I ran a workshop with a group of engineers and project managers. I can't say what the exact project was, but I can say it involved a system in Melbourne that transports people under the ground. I needed to understand the interrelationships between the various user groups, as well as document the motivations and needs of the groups. I was using Lego minifigures to represent all the different users, and we were working across two big tables. The most senior member of the working party kept popping in and out of the workshop, but wasn't involved in the discussion. At one point he said, I'm not sure why you are all messing around with toys. This created a feeling of distrust towards the process. The participants started to disengage. They didn't want to be seen as doing something that wasn't relevant. I realized I hadn't been clear enough in my explanation to show how the activity fit into the overall process. During the break, I quickly drew a matrix on the board and wrote each of the workshop aims. I then put the activities in alignment with the aims so it was clear why we were messing around with toys. As practitioners, we use a range of psychological methods to facilitate lateral thinking and problem solving. Research shows that the act of play, the use of metaphor and storytelling can highlight insights that might not emerge with traditional processes. It's our responsibility to connect the dots for our clients. This is our world, and we can't just expect them to trust us. Once people can connect our design activities to the purpose, it's easier for them to be motivated and see the value of the workshop. 
I know self-determination theory works. Before I had ever even heard of it, I experienced it in action. Over 10 years ago, I needed to motivate one of the most challenging groups of people I'd ever worked with, teenagers. Not only was I working with teenagers, but teenagers who were considered to be youth at risk, kids who hadn't had a fair upbringing. The majority of my students had moved from place to place, often to avoid family violence, and had ended up in Bendigo, about two hours from Melbourne. Many had never seen the ocean, never been to Melbourne, never had a pet. In order for them to pass the class I was teaching, they were required to give a final presentation in front of their peers. I didn't know how I was going to be able to motivate a group of teenagers to stand in front of the class and participate in an activity that over 80% of adults list as one of their most feared experiences, public speaking. How could I get these kids to be motivated to give a presentation with just, when just getting to school every day was a huge challenge? I spoke with some of my colleagues and they mentioned Righteous Pups, a place that trains dogs to assist kids with autism. They had an at-risk teens program to help kids with public speaking, so I organized for my class to be involved. After a few weeks, I could see the difference. It was the first time the students arrived early to my class. They were excited and motivated. Not only did they learn how to train dogs, but their self-confidence grew. The dog trainer encouraged them to stand strong and speak strong. By the end of the program, they could all lead their dogs. When it came time to give their class presentations, they stood with confidence and projected their voice, just like when they directed the dogs. I organized a meeting with Joanne, the head of Righteous Pups, to understand how she was able to get such amazing results and motivate the kids. She said, the most important thing is making sure everyone knows what to do. Don't move on until you are sure that everyone understands and can do it without needing help. The second thing she said is make sure they get encouragement to know they are doing it right. Once the kids know they're competent, they will want to do more. Luckily, she said, she doesn't have to do that because the dogs do that part for her. Joanne told me, the dogs don't judge. They don't know who your family is or who you kissed on the weekend or what brand of jeans you're wearing. They take you as you are. They read your body language and if it is strong and if your voice is assertive, then they will follow your command. The third thing she said is that everyone loves a puppy. The kids connect to the dogs and want to help them improve. By using these three techniques, she was able to motivate hundreds of teens at risk and train the next generation of autism assistance dogs. Years later, when I came across self-determination theory, I realized that this was actually a thing and it can be used to motivate in any type of application. So before you run your next workshop, ask yourself three things. Will attendees know what to do? How will you help them feel competent? And can they connect the workshop activities to their world? You're all out there doing amazing work. It's my aim that by applying self-determination theory, you'll be able to improve engagement in your workshops. Thank you.